All right, well, today we wrap up a sermon series we began a few months back, a series titled New. And in this series, we have seen how in Christ we've received many things. New birth, we've been given new hearts and new minds, new selves, new bodies, and new gifts. We are, as Paul has written, new creations uh, in Christ. The old is gone. Behold, the new is here. And so today, though, we're going to look at what lies into the future. Heaven is going to be our new home. Now, for some reason, everyone's been told that heaven's going to be wonderful, but few people long for it in such a way that actually changes them in the present. Do you long for heaven? And does your longing cause you to be more focused upon living for Christ here today? In our passage, which is Revelation chapter 21, looking at verses 1 through 8, the disciple John has been um, drawn up into a vision of heaven. And in, in chapter 21, he's given a glimpse of the new home to come. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your kindness and your mercy towards us. We thank you that you do not leave us uh, in this beautiful but broken world um, without any hope. And we thank you for the age to come. And we thank you for the promise that we have. May it delight our souls this morning. Wherever we need to be corrected in our understanding of heaven, may you do that freely with us, we pray. Amen. Well, today, one of the absolute biggest bicycle race in all of North America begins. It's called the the Tour of California. Close to 600 miles over seven days of racing. Seven days in a row. Elite cyclists from all over the world have descended upon Sacramento. One of America's hopefuls is the young Lawson Craddock. He's just 25 years old. 
In an interview, he described the mental demands of succeeding at the highest level. He pointed out how it's not enough to have a finely tuned body. Why? Because everybody at that elite level has a finely tuned, extremely fit body. He said that success is more mental than physical. For instance, if you're 110 miles in to a 120-mile race and you still have one huge uh, mountain to climb and your body is already spent, what is it that causes you to overcome, to, to conquer your rivals and win? For Craddock, it's a mental toughness. When he finds himself alone with just three or four competitors on that last climb, he looks at them and, and he realizes, I'm just as fit as them. Now, beat them, get them, do it. He starts shouting at himself inside of his head. He has the mental edge to win. Another famous cyclist, perhaps you know him as Jens Voigt, a uh, German. Uh, he just retired a few years ago. The guy's a character. Um, and he found a success for winning. And one day his competitors saw what it was. And no, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't doping or anything like that. They looked down on his handlebars and they saw a piece of tape with three words on it. Three words that allowed him to win um, more often than not. What were those three words? Shut up legs. <laughs> no, I know you're in pain. Trust me, I feel it, but shut up legs. I know the peloton's right behind me. We got 40 kilometers still to go. Shut up legs. We're going to win this. The Christian life is very much like a marathon bike race in which you must battle against fatigue. It's a cosmic battle between good and evil, not just outside of us. It's also a battle over our own sinful desires. It's a battle against sin and sorrow and disease and decay and even death itself. But in our passage, Jesus, he's the one on the throne, gives us words to to take to the handlebars of our lives, so to speak. Words for our inner voice to scream and shout. The words are, I am making all things new. Look at verse 5. He was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. Shut up, legs. Press on. Endure. Jesus is making all things new. You know, the first readers of the book of Revelation needed to hear that Jesus is making all things new. This book is actually a letter that the disciple John, who is now advanced in years, um, he has written, of course, actually Jesus was writing through him, and it was sent to seven churches throughout what is now modern-day Western Turkey. See, these churches were being beaten down by false teaching. They were succumbing to the immorality of their culture. They were compromising with the surrounding pagan religions. Spiritually, they were complacent. And to top it all off, they were being severely persecuted by the Roman government. And so those seven churches to whom John wrote were in need of both warning and encouragement. Warning not to compromise. Encouragement not to cower in fear. We too were prone to compromise and cowering, giving up on this marathon of the Christian life. Persevering is hard, isn't it? There's the physical demands of life that press upon us. 
We're often just physically tired, aren't we? It's not just me. We're weary. We're prone to sickness. Two out of three last Sundays, I've not felt well, right? Um, at some point, our bodies just give out on us. They fail, and there is no hope for them to be fixed. And then the spiritual demands of life press upon us. I mean, we're tempted in so many different ways, aren't we? And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you've come to realize that this battle will not go away until you die. And so conquering the Christian walk can seem impossible. And so we can begin to compromise, where we begin to cower. That is often our response to the pressures of living in this beautiful but broken world. But if you're a Christian, that's not what you've been called to do. You're called to persevere. We are called to be ones who conquer. That's what we see in verse 7. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. The word conquer can be translated overcome. Christ calls us to endure to the end, to overcome, to persevere, to conquer. He wants us to know that what's around that next uphill bend is a new home. Jesus will make all things new and recreate heaven on a new earth. It will be our new home. And so the idea for us to embrace this morning is this. Because God has promised us a new home, we must live as conquerors. We're going to look at two areas in that area uh, as, we, as we, we investigate that. First, we're going to look at the delightful details and then the persevering promises. First, the delightful details. With this new home that God has promised, he is promising us nothing less than everything your heart longs for that is good. First detail, heaven will be a new physical creation. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and, and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, the Greek word translated heaven is the, is the word which can also be translated with the word sky. And that's what John's meaning here. Um, John saw a new world. He saw an earth with a sky with stars in it. Now, it's helpful to compare this verse 1 with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible opens with the first heaven and the earth being created physically. And then in Revelation 21, we read that the new heaven and the new earth is coming. Why? Because the first heaven and first earth had what? Passed away. Why would, why would, why would uh, this language of death be used? Because in Genesis chapter 3, we see that, that our sin has subjected this world to decay and disorder and death and toil and weariness and sickness and pain and, and unfulfilled longings and ever-present hardship. That's the world we live in now. Do you feel all that? You do, don't you? Just as our bodies need a resurrection into perfection, which we talked about a few weeks back, so too this creation, this world. And so understand this. Ultimately, heaven is a physical reality. And so if you were a Christian today and you were to die, not that I wish that upon you, um, your spirit would depart your body and it would be present with the Lord. And in his presence, you would experience uh, comfort and joy today. 
but you will also be eagerly awaiting the final act, the great day to come when, when Christ recreates this new home on a new heaven and earth. On that day, God will give you that new resurrected body that we talked about a few weeks back. And you will dwell in perfect happiness, soul and body, in a physical heaven on earth. So get rid of those notions of bored, bodiless spirits floating on clouds, playing harps. Your new body will be amazing and glorious. It'll be physical. And you will enjoy, experience eternal joy upon a truly physical world. Now, so heaven is a, is a new physical creation. Also, it no longer will contain any threats. Look at the end of verse 1. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What does the, the sea represent? Well, in the ancient world, the sea represented chaos and evil and peril and threat of disaster as well as tribulations. So by saying that the sea was no more, Jesus is saying that there's a day in the future when this world will no longer present anything that threatens happiness and joy and full communion with God. There will be nothing to cause death or sorrow or pain. Nothing to lead you astray either. Cause you to do something that you would regret. And no loved one could ever be now taken away. Tell me now, honestly, is that not what your heart longs for? Not to float bodiless, but to experience a body in a true, special way. See, every loss or sorrow that you experience today causes your heart to long for this new home that Jesus speaks of here. So heaven will be a new creation. The life you now know so intimately, this life of grief and loss, of regret and of heartache and pain, where death intrudes and suffering is universal, that life will be forever finished one day. God says the sea will be no more. The heaven will also be a city, we see. Heaven is more than just a restoration and renewal of this fallen creation. It, or a place without peril. Look at verse 2. John sees what? A new city. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Our new home is going to be a holy city, the New Jerusalem. Now, the word holy conveys two concepts. It, it means that this city is, 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 in one sense, set apart by God for his good purposes. And in another sense, it, it reflects his moral perfection. This city will reflect God in being perfect and holy and just and good. Just as God is good and lovely and holy, so too will this new city be. Now, why is it that this new city must be holy? Because as we'll soon see, God himself is going to come down to dwell there. But also, you and I, if you are in Christ, are being made holy by Christ. One day, one day all that makes us impure and unable to be in God's presence will be forever gone. 
Picture this. If you belong to Christ, you are on a trajectory of becoming more and more like Christ. And on that day when he returns to bring this all about, we will stand before him and we will look at him and we will be like him. Perfect in love and glory and beauty and majesty. We won't be God, but um, in the flesh of our new bodies, we will radiate perfection just like Christ does. And so you and I will be like Christ, holy and pure and good and infinitely happy. Christian, this is your future. This is what, what we're talking about here. And just as God cannot dwell in a place that is unfit for him, neither will we be able to. If we're going to be holy and pure and good, the, the city itself must be holy and pure and good. My friends, we are being made fit for perfection. And this new city, um, in this new city, we will find it there. Not only is this city described as holy, it has a name. New Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? You don't have to look it up on your phone, I'll tell you. Uh, In Hebrew, it means city of shalom. City of peace. My friends, in the the Hebrew language... um, Peace, this shalom word, is not just absence of conflict. It means something much more. It means the presence of universal flourishing, relationships that are perfect and delightful, occupations that are fulfilling, and, and um, um, the, the ability to, to delight in everything. That's what is coming. That's this city is named City of Peace. How else is this city described? Well, it's described as coming down, what? From God. The city is God's gift. It's his work. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Human beings in their arrogance thought they could build a giant tower up to God. They didn't do it for God's glory, but to make a name for themselves. You know, Look how ingenious we are. We can build a tower all the way up to God. Contrast that with what we, John sees. John sees heaven come down to earth from God. It is God who moves to move heaven to earth. This is the grace of God, lavished upon the people of God. Take notice of the other detail. The city, when it comes down, it's not going to be empty, right? When God sends the city down, it's full of all who have died in Christ. Remember on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples, we read it earlier, Sally read it, that he was going to prepare a place for them, right? In his father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going there. And if you don't believe me, why would I say so if it wasn't true? I'm going to come back for you and I'm going to take you to my father's house. How is this city full of people described? Look at the end of verse 2. It's It's amazing. Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. You know, the Bible uses many different relationships to describe the believer, uses many different images, I'm sorry, to describe the believer's relationship with God, um, with Jesus. Jesus is our good shepherd. He's our Lord. He's the elder brother of ours in the family of God. He is our faithful king. But also, as we see here, he is our bridegroom. And we, the church, are his bride. This is astounding. You know, I get to officiate at a number of weddings. uh, And one thing I really enjoy to do, I got to do it this last weekend, is I enjoy standing next to the groom as he watches the bride come around the bend. 
And to see the excitement. I've never been in a wedding when there wasn't great joy and excitement. Last week I officiated um, Jamie and Tina Nealon's wedding. And you should have seen Jamie's face as he saw his beautifully adorned bride um, turn to come down the aisle. The expression on his face and the way he was standing there made it seem like he just wanted to run and rush towards her. But I guess some sort of propriety was holding him there. Now, I know the analogy of Jesus being the bridegroom and we, the church, being the bride can seem a little bit awkward, right? Especially if you're a dude. Um, But the truth we are to see is astounding. There can be no greater intimacy on earth than that between a groom and his bride. At least we all know that's, that's how it should be. The groom so loves his bride that he carries her near his heart. Always, always seeking to serve her in any way. To increase her joy. To cause her character to grow. To cause her inner beauty to magnify. He lives for her and will gladly lay down his life for her. And in the case of Christ, our bridegroom, that is exactly what he did for us. He laid down his life for us. He gave it all. And it is because Christ gave his life for us, his bride, that we are to be adorned with glory. And so there is a day to come when we have a walking down the aisle experience, so to speak, with with our groom. We will see Christ face to face. And we will look at ourselves and how in his grace he has adorned us with beauty and holiness and happiness and glory. And we will feel so unworthy and yet so worthy. Christian, that day is coming. So shut up, legs. Conquer. Press on. Now for the last detail. And this should amaze us. God is coming down to be with his people. And there's a lot of different views of God all around our world. And, you know, some of them have just like reincarnation. Some of them have, you know, things where you just end up in some sort of nirvana. You lose your personhood. You know, you're no longer yourself. You, you melt into some cosmic just happiness, but you don't remember who you are. I don't know about you. That's not all that, it's not all that appealing. What we really long for as human beings is to have physical bodies in a physical world without the sea and to be with the God who's created us. That is when we will one day be most alive and happy. Nothing else can do that for us. And in this passage, God is coming down to be with his people. Verse 3, John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Why? Because only God can wipe away the tears that we have in this broken and fallen world. Only God can do that in a way that has lasting meaning. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. They've died. Did you hear Jesus' words? He said God himself will be with them. 
God himself, the words are emphatic. God will be with his people. Yes, God himself. He's not sending down a delegation of angels, as awesome as that would be. But God himself is coming to dwell upon a new home on this earth. You know, what, how do you summarize the entire Bible? From the beginning to the end. You, you hear these words over and over and over. If you want to know how to summarize the Bible, it's these words that God says repeatedly to his people, even his people who are often wayward and, and, and stiff-necked and, and not living the way they should be. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's God's promised pledge to sinners like you and me. He has covenanted in the blood of Jesus so that this reality can be true for us. I will be your God and you will be my people. Some of you probably could care less about God being your God, but he wants to be your God far more than we want him to be often. Randy Alcorn makes this observation. God's glory, check this out, will be the air we breathe. And we will always breathe deeper to gain more of it. In the new universe, we'll never be able to travel far enough to leave God's presence. If we could, we'd never want to. However great the wonders of heaven, listen, God himself is heaven's greatest prize. You know, today few people are genuinely genuinely excited to be forever in God's glorious presence. We hear about how we will forever enjoy God and celebrate him and every, with everything we do. And then we hang our heads and we say, you know, that just doesn't sound like all that much fun. I'd rather go to lunch at Sabrosa, you know. Actually, it's Mother's Day. Go somewhere nicer. So why is it that we don't get too excited about dwelling with God and enjoying him forever? Even Christians, why do we have this attitude? Well, in the one sense, it's because we're still surrounded by the sea, right? Things are pressing in upon us, making life hard and difficult. But check this out. The reason why we have this attitude is because we have not yet been fully made ready for heaven. We're not ready for it. You and I are not yet prepared to be the bride. There's a lot more adorning that needs to take place. God has much work still to do. Some of which he cannot do today. He has to wait until that day in which he makes everything new. But mark my words, God will prepare you for heaven. And part of his final preparations will be that you will gain new hearts and minds and bodies that can and will delight in God for all eternity. When you enter your new home, boredom will no longer be a word in your vocabulary. We banished it in our house, but for some reason it still shows up every now and then. Your mind will be made fully fit to search out the unsearchable God who has called you to dwell with him. 
you will, you will be forever unhindered. You will experience eternal shalom. You will forever flourish. We will one day all be adorned and made ready for eternity in our new home. One of the reasons why we don't get so excited about heaven is because that process has not fully taken place yet. And yet, Jesus giving us these words wants us to in some way understand more about what's to come so it can change us in the present. So if you're here today and you feel guilty because you don't get all excited about eternity in heaven, understand this, God will make you fit and ready. And when you enter into the glory of your new home upon the new earth, um, you will be ready. And on that day, you will be set free of all your self-righteousness and your self-deceit. And you will no longer question God's goodness. As Alcorn writes, we'll see it, savor it, enjoy it, and declare it to our companions. Surely we will wonder how we could ever have doubted his goodness. For then our faith will be sight. We shall see God. And on that day, God will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And you you and I will marvel forever at our new home that God has given us. So shut up legs. God is making all things new. Jesus has given us this promise. Your new home is right around the next bend, or well, maybe the next one, but maybe the next one. But, but do not cower, do not compromise. Those are the delightful details. Really quickly, the persevering promises. It is crucial that we understand what God has promised to do. First, Jesus says that this new home, it's as good as done. It's coming, right? Verse 5 and 6, And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, write that down, right? Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus' promise that he is making all things new is so crucial, so important that he says, now John, you just can't memorize this. you got to write that thing down. Those seven churches, they need it word for word. (laughs) That church in Watermill, 2,000 years from now, they're going to need that word for word. You know, sometimes in our staff meetings, I say, okay, now, but write that down. And what I'm saying is this actually is important and crucial. You know, the rest of the stuff, you know, you can freely ignore that. But um, Jesus wants to convey to the entire church that the promise that he has made is in, to make all things new is going to happen. Look at verse 6. He says, it is done. The great day in the future is so certain to happen that Jesus says, past tense, it is done. How is it that you can say something that's in the future, past tense, that it's done? You know, I mean, if I were to say to you, my St. Louis Cardinals are going to win the World Series this fall, I mean, you know, you'd you'd like roll your eyes at me, you know? Good luck, right? Maybe it'd be Detroit this year. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Jesus can guarantee the new home. Why? Because he says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is what? The first uh, letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. 
in saying that, that he is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, Jesus is applying to himself titles that only God deserves. So those of you who are like, I don't think Jesus is really God. Well, Jesus is God, fully God. Uh, and, and it's saying that I have absolute authority over the events of human history. So he is able to say, past tense, about something that's in the future. This new creation will come. The next promise is at the end of verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In the next chapter, verse 1, Revelation 22, we see that this the spring of the water of life is a river in this city that, that flows from the throne of God all the way through the middle of the street of the city. What is this imagery meant to convey? Well, it, it highlights the life-giving sustenance that flows from God the giver of life. This is the life-giving presence of God. And it's important to note that this life-giving presence of God is a, is a free gift. What does it say? It comes without payment. We like to think we can earn our way uh, to God's favor, do the right things. I've lived a pretty good life. Of course, God has to you know, approve me and welcome me in. We see here that this blessing of God's presence, is a, it's a free gift. You have to receive it as such. See, our, our receipt of it does not depend on our worthiness, but on what? Our thirst. It's only that when you've been humbled to realize you cannot be the person you know you need to be in order to enter heaven, it's then then you cry out with thirst for God's forgiveness. To the thirsty, it's given without cost. The next promise is in verse 7. The um, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, the word conquers can be also be translated with overcomes. I've mentioned that. And what Jesus is saying is that the one who overcomes will have a heritage or an inheritance. And what is the inheritance? Uh, it's sonship status with God. Remember in the ancient day, he says, you know, God will be um, a father, and he, and, um, and he will be my son. So in the ancient days, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, it was the firstborn son who received the full inheritance. Sorry, second son. Uh, sorry, sister. Um, firstborn son. And so what, let's not get hung up on this, but what God is promising here is that the full blessing of the firstborn son is given to all of God's children, whether male or female. That's the point. This new home with its eternal joys and blessings and intimacy with God the Father is yours. But it says for those who conquer. Don't those words seem to contradict verse 6? I mean, how can the one seated on the throne say that all you need to do is thirst and this new home is given to you without payment and now there's this addendum about conquering, you know, shut up legs, whatever that is. So what is it? Remember the context. The seven churches were compromising their faith. They were cowering in fear. The sea was pressing in on them, right? They're in danger of turning away from their first love, which is Christ. And so those seven churches, they would have received these words as a, as a really strong call to persevere no matter what. Jesus has promised a day when the sea will be no more. He waits for you like a groom anxious to see his bride. So don't give up. It's yours by faith. Often we see in the Bible the true things that God has done for us by his grace, and right next to it are things that we're called to do. And in this sense, it's because you've received this home as a free gift of God's grace. Don't give up and live for that. Don't allow this world to suck you in, and don't cower in fear. 
live on and press on until that day. Shut up legs, serve Christ, power onward, power upward. Lastly, these promises come with a warning. Not all will enter the holy bliss of the new home. I know this upsets some modern people today. You know, their vision of God, he's a kind God, and, you know, um, their God would never judge anybody. And, and yet, sometimes these people themselves are quite judgmental. Jesus said, by the same judgment that you judge others, you will be judged by the Heavenly Father. We will be judged, not so much by the laws of God, but how we, the laws that we hold for our neighbors, that we hold over their heads. How, you better be kind. You better pick up the trash in your own yard. Meanwhile, we don't pick up our own trash in our own yard, and we're not kind. That's a little bit of a tangent. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, you need to know it's true, and I, I'm living witness to some of this reality. Heaven will be populated with cowards and the faithless, and yes, even murderers. Jesus said if you get angry with someone, you're committing murder in your heart. If you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. But heaven will be populated with such as those, right? But why? Because many, many of those people have repented and they've turned and trusted in Christ and Christ alone is their entry and access into heaven. But the list in verse 8 is a warning that this life matters for all eternity. What you do with this life, what you do with Christ, how you respond to him matters for all eternity. If you wish to deny your maker and use the one life he has given you for your own idolatrous gain, then there will be a second death. Just as the believer will receive a second life, the unbeliever will receive a second death. I like how C.S. Lewis describes hell. He says, you know, he, you know, he talks about hell being the place where those who say no to God in this lifetime get their wish for all eternity. And that hell's locked from the inside. People don't want God's presence. They've rejected him. They get that wish for all eternity. I know this may tick some of you off. Your God would never judge anyone. Your God is a God of love. Well, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. And a God who really loves better judge, Right? How can God really be a loving and powerful God if he never brings to justice those who hurt others made in his image? And we cry out for justice all the time. God is right to only let into his new home those who belong there, those who've thirsted for it. All right. So we've seen that because God has promised a new home, we must live as conquerors. We looked at the delightful details. We've looked at the persevering promises. Now, has God's plan for the ages, has it it captured your heart? Do you thirst for it? Has it redirected your longings? Has it given you words to shout out when you're tempted to give up? One morning in 1932, I wasn't there, um, Residents of Sydney, Australia, definitely wasn't there, woke to find one word written over and over on the sidewalk in beautiful script in chalk. The word, eternity. 
From that moment on, for the next 35 years or so, every morning, Sydney ciders, that's what they call themselves, I guess, would wake up to find inscribed on walls and on sidewalks the word eternity. Over and over. Eternity, eternity, eternity. About 500,000 times it was estimated across the period of time. The words appeared on the streets. This, the, whoever wrote it was a bit of an enigma. became quite legendary. However, a newspaper figured it out. They broke the story. Turns out it was Mr. Arthur Stace, who had once been a petty criminal and an alcoholic who was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the weight of eternity and this new home to come weighed down upon him and pressed upon his his heart. And he was also anxious for the people of Sydney. So he kept writing the words, eternity, eternity, eternity. Oh, that eternity and the hope of the new heaven on earth to come, our new home, would captivate our hearts. That it would stir us to great longings. May it be taped to the handlebars of our souls. Jesus is making all things new. I have a new home coming. Therefore, I can overcome. Because Christ has made me to be an overcomer. I can conquer. Because Christ has conquered for me. Let's pray. Father, it sounds somewhat like myth or story made up to just keep people happy. But it's true. It's been written down. These are your words to your people made in your image. Um, We're thankful that your promise is that you will be our God and we will be your people, and that you are relentless in your pursuit of us, that you do not let our sin or even the sea that is all around us to prevent you from captivating our hearts with the glory of the gospel. We pray that we would be changed in this hour. Wherever there's questions or doubts, that you would sort them out in whoever has them, so that we all may depart here with this great hope. May we... May we be a people who say, deep in our souls, Jesus is making all things new. And may we believe it. And may it transform us, we pray. Amen.